you know, shift gears into our talk. Today we're, um, we're finishing Jesus' Good Shepherd teaching. And two weeks ago, in case this is your first time visiting or maybe you've missed these prior talks, uh, two weeks ago we began studying uh, a parable that Jesus gave us, he taught, where he likened himself to being the Good Shepherd. And those who follow him, that's you and I, as his sheep. All these talks are online. If you've missed them, they're pretty important. So I would encourage you to go back and check them out. But nonetheless, that's the gist of where we were coming from. And so in John 10, 1 through 13, the first talk, Jesus gave us this amazing criteria for what a false shepherd is so that we could learn to stay away from them. So we would truly know the difference between a true shepherd and and a hired hand. One seeks to bring glory to God and benefit people. The other is essentially in it for self and wants to hurt people. Okay. Verses 14 through 30, we learn that one of the promises uh, of the Good Shepherd, again, with the Good Shepherd comes these amazing uh, gifts, you might consider them to be, is his peace. Following the Good Shepherd, being one of his sheep, recognize, re- it's this recognition that with Christ comes this amazing ability to have peace in circumstances that are often unideal in life, to have peace during times that are peaceless. And somewhat ironically, um, that promise that Jesus gave us was given to us during a, he's, he's having this conversation, he's teaching on peace while he is surrounded by a group of Pharisees trying to kill him. So there's no like theory in what Jesus is talking about. He is literally giving us peace while he is in a circumstance that obviously um, validates it being robbed from him. You know, the potential of losing your life by stoning is a pretty significant uh, crisis to be dealing with. And so in this chapter, the back end of it anyways, what we're about to see is that the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, it's about to come to a head. It comes to a head a multitudes of time in the Gospel of John, but this is a significant one, and here's why. There's some, some theological subtext I want to point out to kind of give you the framework of where we're at. If you recall in our first talk, um, Jesus is in hot water right now because he's just been charged uh, with breaking the Sabbath. And remember, this is a religious culture, so religious laws are, are kind of, you can prosecute them, if you will, right? And so he heals a paralyzed man, uh, or excuse me, he heals a, a blind man uh, on the Sabbath. And what winds up happening is he is, uh, he is now re- rebuked for it, okay? They're trying to kill him because he broke the Sabbath rule. They don't care about the man and the healing. They just care about the fact that he broke the Sabbath. In the verses we're looking at today, based on what we studied last week, there's another charge, a more serious one that is introduced. Uh, and up to this point, there's been this kind of like rhetoric of blasphemy, you know, claiming to be God. That is an instant death sentence in the first century world. He's, there's been this kind of loose talk about blaspheming God. However, today, Jesus is officially now accused of it because of what he said last week, and we'll touch on it again today. He, he is proclaimed officially that he is God. He has told the world and the people in front of him that, uh, that I am the Son of God. I am God. And so he is in real trouble. Uh, and what's interesting about this promise of peace and all these things we've been looking at is that while he's in real trouble, uh, he is not afraid. And this is where I think things get interesting because in the past, uh, and we'll certainly see this a little bit in the future in the Gospel of John, Jesus has pointed to what he has done his works, if you will, to validate his claim to be God. He's like, hey, I just made a blind guy see. Like, does, does that count for anything? This is kind of like where he's at right now. But people are still looking at him, disagreeing with him. So in his grace, he appeals to a, a secondary authority, a different kind of authority. He, he, he gets to this place where he's dealing with the religious elite, and he introduces, an, it's an undeniable authority, meant to become a flaming arrow, specifically targeted at a group of hyper-religious people. Remember, that's who we're dealing with right now. They're hyper-religious people. And he, he says and does something so central to Christian living. Yes, this episode we're studying happened 2,000 years ago, but it matters deeply for not, not just after this hour, but like right now this matters. What he does stands as a supreme example of how we should be living the Christian faith. 
And so Jesus is in trouble. Here's what's going on. He's in trouble, threat of his life, and his audience is looking for the truth about him. His audience is wanting to know who he is. They're saying, we know truth is out there. Tell us who you are. And in one action, he addresses both issues. He shows us where we should turn to when we're in trouble while simultaneously letting the Pharisees know where they can go to find the answers they're looking for. In other words, he's saying, you want truth? Here's where you'll find it. And here's here's what he shows us. The first big idea I want to talk about this morning, there will be two. The first is this. During times of crises, our first action should always be to seek God's truth in the Scripture. And I want to reread John 10, 30 through 33. I and the Father are one. There's the statement. That's why they're claiming blasphemy now. He just said, I'm God. Again, his Jewish opponents, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. There's authority one, right? For which of these do you stone me? In other words, he's saying, like, I've done a ton of good stuff. What did, what did I do wrong? Why are you going to try to kill me? And then so when they say, we're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you are a mere man claiming to be God. Now, before we delve into the details of this story, I want to issue an important caveat. In all areas of life, whether it is good or bad, whether it is normal and healthy or there is significant crisis, a true follower of Jesus, right, a disciple of Jesus, should understand why they need to make it a priority to know God through the Scripture. This is kind of an exceptional thing Jesus is doing here that is not really exceptional at all. It's, it's especially important to seek God's wisdom um, in all areas of life, but, but especially when we are faced with what seem to be insurmountable odds or hopeless circumstances in life. And so just look at what's happening here. Jesus is at the tail end of his teaching about being the good shepherd, which is almost, he's almost forced to give this. It's a response to him healing this blind man on the Sabbath. And furthering the tension, he's just now told the world he's the good shepherd. He, he, the mystery is revealed. Here's the good shepherd. The good shepherd is God. I am God. That's how you can track what he says in this chapter. And upon hearing his words, the crowds are ready to kill him. They tell Jesus, it's not the good things that you do that make us want to stone you. Although that's highly debatable. If you look at Jesus' life, one of the real tension points here is that he's, he's quintessentially exemplifying the nature of the gospel. He's disadvantaging himself for the benefit of other people. And what's happening is the Pharisees are... St- Jesus is not intentionally trying to make them look bad, but they're starting to look bad. The great Savior who's doing amazing things for the world is essentially outpacing the religious elite who claim to love God. And so they're very angry with him. They're losing their power, their status, their, their hired hands based on what Jesus has said, right? They bounce when it's easy, or they claim to, they want to fight to keep what they have to be able to have control or power. That's not what Jesus is doing here. So they say, we want to kill you, not because of, because of the good stuff you're doing, but because you're just a guy, and you say you're God, and that's wrong. And so if we learn anything from, from this crisis that Jesus is facing here, verse 33 really shows us that throughout this whole teaching, Jesus is in immediate danger. John tells us, like, the stones were already in the hands. They they were, like, at their feet. They were ready to go to take him out when he began saying these things. And so as he's speaking to these crowds, things are very tense. But he is not worried. He's like he always is, pretty composed. And in his grace, he's not defending himself. He's actually responding to their accusations with the intention of correcting them. He's trying to lead them to truth. He's being a good shepherd to people who, let's be honest, are not really worthy of being shepherded. This is our everybody's story. So this is what is great about Jesus is he often shows us his grace when we really do not deserve it. Uh, so even the Pharisees, whether we like it or not, they get grace. Jesus is trying to explain to them who he is. He's trying to reveal light to them. And so here's the natural tension point with a story like this. You might be thinking, well, uh, that's because he's Jesus. Why is Jesus like uh, unafraid and very uh, you know, composed right now? What, why, why is he able to do this? Well, you say because he's Jesus. 
Scripture teaches us that he could have called down legions of angels to annihilate his enemies, or with a single word, he could have secured his own safety. We know that Jesus had an endless array of options to deal with the crises before him because he is God, and there are some perks that come with being God, right? Here's what's interesting about this, though. With all those options, he chooses to use a very particular one, one that is as extremely pow- it's as powerful as calling angels down, right? And it's one, though, that there's a distinct difference about. There are options Jesus has in this text that you and I do not have. And that's why I believe with all my heart he doesn't use them. He uses an, an, an option to deal with this that you and I have the same unbridled access to. What does he do? Well, we know he doesn't call down the angels and smote the world. He turns to a passage of scripture, which is something you and I can do at any given time of the day. And we learn something very valuable about Jesus and life. Relying on the scripture for everyday living is an incredibly common practice in the life of Jesus. And Jesus is God. Okay, So if he's doing it, we should be doing it. In verse 35, his first action when faced with crisis in life, his, his defense, if you will, is to turn to the scripture. It's a source of strength and power that he says literally cannot be set aside in any situation. And what's interesting about the word is that we touched on this kind of lightly last week regarding peace, but the word kind of falls under the same, the same idea. The word never promises to remove the problems of life. Like Jesus doesn't go to the word and all of a sudden, you know, the troubles in front of him disappear. As we see, the Pharisees still want to kill him. Rather, it becomes a source of strength, which God can use to give us what we need to persevere through the problems of life. So don't think about um, the promises of Jesus as like a big bulldozer that just moves all this stuff out of the way. That can happen, and sometimes it does happen. Um, The analogy I like to use, and I've used it before, is consider the promises of Jesus like a Coast Guard cutter. They go through the wave no matter what it is doing. They, They are strong enough and powerful enough to take the hits of the ocean, and yeah, they might rock a good bit, but the bottom line is at the end of the day, they move through the wave. That's the kind of peace. That's the power of the word, is it gives you the authority to get through the crises, not to necessarily have it removed, although I would not discourage you from praying about that. But oftentimes the anxiety that comes with, with challenges and problems in life, we, we are deeply anxious because we don't recognize the, redemption, the redemptive value in them, that God can actually use these things to make us more like the image of his son Jesus. That can actually change the way you see these things. And so if you need further proof of Jesus, making it an ultimate priority to rely on scripture for everyday living, all you have to do is look at another gospel, the gospel of Matthew, right? Chapter four, got the great story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And it's in that passage, you know, that famous story that we know Jesus is, is tempted three times. That Satan is trying to tempt him with power and pride, all the things that, that the good shepherd stays away from. And what does he do? Does he call down the angels? No. Uh, does he use his power to crush the enemy? No. We know we can do all these things. What does he do? Three times, he turns to specific passages of Scripture as his source of strength for why he should not sin against his father. This is a, a, an, ab, it's an exceptional thing that is incredibly normal for you and I to be able to do. And that's why I think Jesus does it. If he solved all these problems with the extracurricular power of God, you and I would be hopeless because we can't call that stuff down, right? At least maybe some of the Old Testament prophets could, but that's not, pretty, that's not normal in most of our, our church cultures today. But here, his defense and his offense when confronted with the temptation and trials of life, it's scripture. And that's an amazing statement. The God of the universe is turning to his own word during these difficult situations. And this begs a very interesting and very practical question. What is it that you turn to when when crisis arises? And there are some usual suspects here. I want to name a few. 
Um, sometimes when life gets difficult or when crisis is in front of us, whatever it is, um, some people are conditioned to turn to friends during, during that crisis. Their knee-jerk reaction is not like Jesus. To, to all, none of these things here are, are essentially bad, let me say that, but they should not necessarily be the first step, and they certainly should not be disconnected from, from the truth of the word. Right? So some of us immediately, we go to peers. As soon as things go awry, we get on the phone, we start venting to people, we fire up the old Facebook account, and we confuse the world by vague-booking our problems to the world. You know where I'm going with this? It's like, today, woke up mad because so-and-so did this to me, and this happened, and now I got to do this to be able to handle this. Hashtag pray for me. And you're like, what are you talking about right now? Like, you, you read that, and you're like, I'm so confused. I think this is bad, sort of, but I'm not sure because I don't know who X is, Y, or Z, and I don't understand the, hash, the hashtag, right? So th- we, we have these coping, these are upset, accepted cultural mechanisms to deal with stuff in the world. We, we vague book, or maybe we're explicitly vehement on Facebook, or whatever it is. But nonetheless, this is like, this is a way that people deal with with, with challenges or problems or daily issues. And I understand why we do stuff like this, why we, bigger principle, turn to friends, because there is almost always an immediate response. Sometimes when you bring a big issue to God and you're praying, he doesn't like, he doesn't like your post <laughs> and immediately respond. You might bring something to a friend, though, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's messed up. Absolutely. Like, that's so, and then you're like, yeah, that is messed up. Let's go big book together. You and I can both confuse the world with what we put on Facebook. Right? That's what winds up. What hap- it's what happens. So people on Facebook and in your life, um, they tend to give you immediate responses. Not all of them, but some of them give you very, very explicit and clear responses immediately. And some of them, if we're going to be honest, are not clearly thought out at all, right? And so the bottom line in this is people do this stuff because it instantly gratifies what is an insatiable need to have an answer. You know, when we prayed for Paris last week, we often want an answer. And sometimes we get those, and sometimes we don't get those. And sometimes we do get them, but it takes a long time. So this, this can feel comforting because the counsel is immediate and tangible. Unlike God's counsel at times, his, his counsel is clear in the word, but it doesn't always satisfy every kind of inkling that we have in our hearts to know what's going on. I will say this, though. This can also be a little dangerous. There's no doubt that turning to people during times of difficulty is good and biblical. I mean, one of our values as a church is authentic community. We recognize that God has placed us here for him and for each other. That's, that's important. So I'm not knocking this. I'm just saying you have to remember it's never meant to be done apart from the truth of Scripture because at that point, all you're dealing with, with is the guidance of somebody else's opinion. And that might be okay if you're not a professing believer, but if you claim to love Jesus, then you have to reconcile that. You're essentially, you're following a different shepherd at that point, whether it's your own emotions or the emotional uh, opinions of somebody else. And I think the greatest example we have of this in Scripture is the story of Job. Remember, his life takes a turn for the south. This guy is one of the most faithful men in the Old Testament, and God gives the enemy permission to sort his life. He says, you can do everything you want, but just you can't kill him. And the first thing he does, you might remember if you've read this, is he goes to his friends for counsel. And, you know, we learned through the book of Job that Job didn't do anything wrong. But his friends are like, oh, man, you must have really, you know, ticked God off because that's why he's just ruined your life. And so to have listened to the counsel of those friends, which was, I think it was noble in the sense that they weren't trying to mislead him. But if he would have tapped into that, he would have absolutely have been misled and he would have missed the whole point of what was going on there. So it's not, it's not bad to seek the counsel of friends. It is bad, however, to solely rely on the counsel of people that might be well-intentioned but misguided because uh, it, will, it will really ruin you. It has the potential to take you down paths you don't belong.
So be thankful here, right, that you have friends to turn to if you do. And if you don't, that is one of the promises of the good shepherd. If you're a Christian without genuine communities, that is out of line. There's something kind of wrong about that, and we'll want to deal with that. God gives you brothers and sisters in Jesus to be able to live the life. So be thankful for having friends to turn to, but don't ever elevate them to the place where you replace God's perfect counsel through his word through them. That creates a real challenge, okay? Some of us, second thing, are conditioned to go to the plow during a crisis. I've mentioned this before. I think it's the best way to explain it. And I'll self-disclose here. Uh, this, is the w- this is the one I'm hardwired towards. To this, w- when, when I think about this, it's not that I'm, I might not use these other tools, but this is my knee-jerk where I'm going to go. So if you're one of those like type A, you know, get it done, problem-solving, super-driven personalities, like you have uh, sticky notes all over your, your world and on your forehead to remember stuff and all these organizational systems to get stuff done, you likely are not going to go to other people first to deal with challenges or problems in life. You're going to turn to yourself. Because you trust in your own abilities, you trust in your personal experience, you trust in hard work and resources, and you wouldn't dare think of going to somebody else for your issues because right now they're your issues, and that's your, your job and your world. These issues are mine, and I've got to deal with them. And so what happens is, is you, you build the mentality of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. And this can actually work sometimes until you're faced with a problem that far exceeds the capabilities of your plow. Here's where this, this one goes south. And if you have lived at all on this earth, uh, you know that while it might sound good and in, in poetry, you can not always work yourself hard enough to, to deal with the situation. Sometimes the situations of life far exceed your ability to handle them. So when it does happen, because this will happen, you will immediately see the fault in this. When you don't have enough time or effort to fix something, or when you know, your meager bank account no longer has the money to fix the problem, or maybe when you're dealing with a physical illness that you, you cannot will yourself out of. I'll give you a very personal story here. I've um, the most explicit example that I've had of this in my own life is, you know, when your five-year-old son is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. You know, in that situation, um, my knee-jerk is to fix, but the truth is I, can't, I cannot fix anything. In fact, if there was ever a situation in my life that reminded me how broken the plow can be at times, that, that was it. There was no fix. There is no, uh, you know, greater sense of resourcefulness. There isn't even enough money in the world to make that go away, right? It's utterly out of my control, And so if God has hardwired you to be a resourceful, hardworking person, that is a super good thing. And God has great purpose for people like that. You just have to be cautious to not trust so much in your own faculties that you begin to replace God's perfect counsel through through his word with it. I'll give you a good example of this kind of connected is um, I've realized I cannot do anything to heal my son, but I pray every night that God would heal my son. That's going to be his prerogative to do so. Uh, But nonetheless, that is out of my circumstantial control. And so I have firmly learn to, to rest it in Jesus' hands where, where, it, where it has always belonged. So be careful if you go to the plow. That has its faults. Third one. Uh, some people condition themselves to turn to the pit of despair. This is, um, this is an interesting one because it's actually the exact opposite of the person who goes to the plow. And so this is a common thing in our culture where, where when faced with a difficult circumstance or a life trial, people seek out, I almost like to call it a self-imposed misery, uh, it, that's the coping mechanism. Uh, it turns into, if it's left unchecked anyways, a woe is me complex. And every one of us has probably seen, personally experienced this in life. Right? So the pit of despair uh, is kind of like the Hotel California. Once you check into it, you, you just don't want to check out. And it actually begins to breed a false sense of security and comfort. This is why it's so dangerous. In modern day terms, we call it a victim complex. And for some reason, this person begins to find a twisted satisfaction in, in kind of in, in dwelling in misery. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, 
or at least a warning I was given about this years ago. When I, when I took my first church, so it was almost 17 years ago, I was a student pastor in New Orleans. Um, it was in, I, I, was, I, I took my first church, and I was kind of, I'm insatiable. I have an insatiable desire for information. I always have. And so I see that I have a task in front of me, and I know that God has called me, but I don't entirely feel equipped for it. So I start calling everything and everybody I know to start figuring out stuff. I'm fact-finding. And I asked a bunch of my uh, good friends, one, one man in particular, who was a really seasoned pastor, um, to share with me some of the lessons they had learned in ministry. I was just trying to find out what the stuff I knew. Like if he said, look, you will mess this up if you don't know this. Those were the things I was trying to find. And so he said to me, and keep in mind, this was said in the context of pastoring a church, but this is not hard at all to see how this applies to any area of life when a person is trying to follow God, whether it is in the ministry and mission of the church or in your vocation, your workplace, with your children. Right? This is a universal application, but it was given to me in a specific way. Without hesitation, when I said, tell me, tell me what I need to know. What are the lessons you've learned? He said, listen, serving God, it can be hard. And I would say sometimes can is more than is, right? It really can be difficult at times. It's challenging. And sometimes you put your all into something and, and you, you, maybe the effort you put in, you feel like you don't get a, a reciprocal response, right? There's all kinds of, of challenges connected with serving God. And he said, in the church, what will happen is you'll constantly find yourself faced with situations and problems that are beyond your control. You know, here's a good example. We've been praying now pretty regularly for a a new place to meet, a more permanent space. And while we know what we want to do, we don't really have any control in that at the moment, right? That's a good example. Situations that you might even have clarity in what to do, but they're out of your control to handle. And he said, you'll find yourself dealing with, with your own life challenges while shepherding the people of God placed in your life. So remember, keep this in mind with your leaders here. You know, everybody's got stuff going on. And it's not, it's, and this is why the body matters. We don't want to just, um, and it's to a certain degree, pedestalize, you know, your community group leaders or your kids leaders or pastors and elders, whatever. Everybody is, is a sheep. This is where that, that playing ground has to be leveled. And so we're ministering uh, to others oftentimes while we are needing to be ministered too. That's the reality of the kingdom. And that's a good thing. So when things get hard, here's the, here's the potential problem here. When things get hard and you start seeing like or feeling like things are out of your control, it's very easy to start saying, man, my life was supposed to be A, B, and C, but it, hadn't, it doesn't look like that at all. Like I planned it this way, but it, but it hadn't turned out the way I expected it to be. Does that feeling kind of sound familiar? That's, that is a, that's the battle cry of a person that's about to come into some rough waters. Like I thought it would work out this way, but it didn't. That is a familiar emotional reality for a lot of us. And when he was bringing this up, he told me, when it comes to that, when that happens, you're going to be faced with two ways to respond. The first is you can recognize it's out of your control, uh, and you can learn to depend on God. In other words, you can do what Jesus did. You can go to the scripture, which we'll talk about here in a minute. Psalm 82, that's what he's quoting. He goes to the word, and he finds authority and power to live based on what God has said about him. Or... You can jump into the pit of despair and drown in your sorrows. That's, if left unchecked, what you say is, man, the wave is too big and I am about to get wrecked by it. And then you wind up drowning in the ocean of life. He went on to say many people spend the majority of their days, they stand at the edge of that pit with their toes curled around the edge. And they're just kind of like an inch away from jumping from it. It's like one more thing and I'm in. You know, one more thing and I'm in. And the reason I think people do this is because sometimes it feels good to wallow in sorrow. It really feels good to kind of, if for nothing less, to validate to yourself the way you feel. And that is, it plays, it plays an important role in life. I mean, validating where we are is important. But I would say remaining in a constant state of wallowing, it isn't good for you. And it isn't good for those that are around you. In fact, it can be a poor testimony to others as you tell people about God's power in your life, but then you really have no evidence of it when you, when you need it most. 
So uh, speaking of turning to God's word in times of hardship, uh, here's an interesting verse that I think um, it's really good for for people that feel like they might want to jump in the pit of despair. Uh, It's one that I read a lot, and it's very important in my life. Paul wrote it while he was in prison, and again, he's awaiting execution. So he's writing this while he's like on death row, essentially, okay? 2 Timothy 1, 7 through 9, he says this, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but it gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What an interesting invitation. It's not the only time he offers it. Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, before the beginning of time. So as far as this first idea goes, if there's, if there's one thing we can learn from this interaction Jesus is currently having with the Pharisees, it's this. When faced with crises and, according to John, Im- almost immediate death, like he's one rock away from losing his life right now. Uh, Jesus doesn't cower. He doesn't accept defeat. And neither do any of the other godly men and women that we, we read about in the Scripture because they learn to turn to and rely on the truths of God's Word when, when the world comes tumbling down around them. And that's something that we should do too. And it really does lead us into the second thing, the second truth that Jesus' life shows us about today. Remember, he's teaching and showing right now. He's not just talking about this. He's also doing this. It's this. Don't make the mistake of dealing with the matters of your life without God's word in your heart. And we see this in John 10, 34 through 36. Jesus answered them. Here's where the rubber meets the road right now. Is it not written in your law? I have said you are God's. And if he called them God's to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside. Key statement. That's essentially what the back end of this talk is going to revolve around. What about the one whom the father set apart? as his very own, and sent into the world. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's son. And so Jesus now moves a little bit to the offense. And in verse 35, he uses, um, it's, a, it's a very sophisticated uh, rabbinical line of reasoning to show the rabbis why he is God. In a couple of minutes, we're going to show how simple the argument is, but I want to explain to you what he's doing here. He's arguing with them on both a theological and a philosophical level, and one that shows how in touch he is with the scripture and the Jewish culture. And this is something to note. It's really neat, actually, because it shows us Jesus is doing one of the things we ask you guys to do every week, contextualize the gospel, recognize that you have a faith in you, and there are people in all places in life, and you have a responsibility before Jesus to be able to talk to that person about your faith in a way that makes sense to them. I'm not sure that most of us will have to deal with high-level theological and philosophical Jewish uh, uh, ideas on a weekly basis, but Jesus is in a Jewish world right now, and what he's showing us is that he understands where people are coming from. So the simple point here is just make sure you understand where people are coming from in an interaction that God provides you to share the gospel, whether that is through word or deed or both. He's teaching this in a way that they can easily relate to. But here's another great example of contextualization. It requires a little explanation because this is not a normal thing for us in our world. Most of us are not really in tune with Jewish faith, the Jewish faith, right? So here Jesus uses this, this, the rabbi's strong Jewish beliefs about the law and scripture to prove who he says he is. And remember, the main reason the Pharisees are so furious with Jesus is because he's claimed to be the son of God. That's going to matter in a moment. And obviously they don't believe him. So to them, like for those of you in Jesus, when you hear the son of God, you think, yeah, he's coming. Christmas is coming and the Messiah is here. They don't hear this. What they hear is this guy just claimed to be God. And we know like a hundred other people in the past year that have said the same thing. And so what's happening is, is he's, he's actually, he's not God. He's claiming to be God. He's a heretic. That's what they're saying right now. 
He's claiming to be another God. This is a major problem for the, in the first century world because th- one of the core tenets of Israel, the thing that separated them from the rest of the world, is that they only love one God. They only worship one God. That belief is key to who they are. It separates them from all other cultures in the Near East. And you can see why they're so intentionally concerned about it when they sense it amongst a guy claiming to be another God, a son of God. Their lack of belief here, their inability to see and hear what Jesus is saying, explains pretty rationally why they misunderstood who Jesus was. Because he didn't say he was another God, he said he was God. And so in an effort to get them to see, Jesus quotes a well-known psalm in Psalm 82.6, where Asaph speaks of a time in Israel's history where men were called gods. And the passage recalls this time where, where the law, God's self-revelation of himself, the scripture is given to Israel, and connected to that passage, it is taught that when, when somebody wants to follow God's law with all their heart in the world, God gives them the identity of, of a son of God. It's, like, it's, it's that whole like adoption idea that we have in the New Testament. You and I are now children of God when we seek to Im, you know, embody and live out the ways of Christ on earth. And so the context of that psalm, in a rather negative way, shows us that God's people at this point were not doing so well with that command. And the point of it was to remind them of this, but also to rebuke them a little bit, that there were lots of religious people who had claimed this special God-like status, but they were not living up to the task, largely because they were claiming to deeply love God with their lips, but they were neglecting the poor, they were not caring about the weak, they had no desire to, to relieve the suffering and the distress of the orphan. There was a world around them that was oppressed, and they just learned to disconnect themselves from it. And this is where Asaph rather bluntly puts them in their place. And I'll just read you one excerpt, the excerpt Jesus is quoting. This is what he's quoting in, in this passage in John. Psalm 82, 6 through 8, Jesus says this, I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. And so Jesus uses a very complicated psalm to give a very clear reason for why they should believe in who he says he is. His sophisticated response to their accusation of him blaspheming God can be summed up like this. Don't try to accuse me of blasphemy because I claim to be a son of God, the son of God. He says, your own scriptures, right, which you claim to believe in and have have submitted to, teach there have been times when scripture itself calls men sons of God. You cannot set aside the scriptures, what he says in verse 35. Yet, he then goes on to say, kind of figuratively here, we, we, he says, these people that you rightly called sons of God, or you, you in your own eyes thought they were sons of God, they did not live up to the title. In fact, they took advantage of it. They, they, they claimed that identity without the substance behind it. Lip service to God. And he's saying, it's right there in your Bible. On the contrary, he says, I'm not one of those guys. Here's where the conflict is. I have perfectly exercised God's law and justice during my time on earth. I have healed the hurting, and I have cared for the oppressed. Remember, we're arguing right now because I made a blind guy see. I'm caring for those with significant need. I've proven through my works and now my word that I am who I say I am. And you claim to believe that same truth. In this case, what he's saying is, you claim to believe that the word we both affirm has the final authority in all matters of life. It's the final say. Yet you have arrived at a conclusion to deny me. And this is an issue. And there is a very simple and profound truth we can learn from Jesus's incredibly sophisticated theological line of reasoning. It's this. Here's the takeaway for this morning. We've got to be very careful to avoid the hard attitude of selective obedience that the Pharisees are displaying here. That's what they're doing. One of the big rocks in the jar Jesus is dealing with here is what happens when you selectively choose to submit your uh, your life to parts of the Bible that are convenient for your life at the time, but then you jettison the parts that are inconvenient to your life. And we clearly see this happening here because Jesus just uses, he uses Psalm 82 to, to tell them like, 
based on your primary authority, this is wrong. Yet the Pharisees overlook that. They don't even pay it any mind. They take the truth that cannot be set aside, Jesus says. They just throw the psalm away to justify their sinful behavior. And now what's happened is they know he's innocent. These are smart guys. They know he's right, but they still want to kill him. So it shows us that they're submitting to a different authority. At this point, it's probably their own desire to remove him. Now, let's be honest. Okay, selective obedience might not be this extreme in our lives. This has never happened in the kids' ministry. We've never had like an incident of you know, something like this aggressive going on. So this is a, a very peaked example of a very normative thing in the Christian faith. So while we might not have this extreme version of it, part of following Christ means we're all going to have times in our lives where Jesus asks us to do something or to believe something or to be something that honors God but might extremely inconvenience what Paul calls our flesh. This is nothing new. In fact, like most of the rhythms God asks us to embody in life, they are perfectly displayed in Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. It truly begins and always goes back to the gospel. Think about this. There is nothing convenient about submitting your life to God by being crucified for the sins of the world. Jesus, I mean, absolutely takes one for the, for the world's team at that point. But he does it because of his love for God, his fidelity to what he knows God wants to do in the world, and his care for us. And this is a common thing, this, this, at least the reverse of this. Um, when I was a youth minister, I saw this, uh, this selective obedience issue a lot and in very extreme ways. You know, you got, you got people trying to figure out life as they're teens and, you know, preteens, and they're just sorting the world out. And so it was, it was really uh, bad, so bad anyways, that I, I used a term you might remember if you were with us during the busyness series. We applied it to time, but this, really, this, this term has no boundary regarding our faith. It, it was so su- significant that I called it compartmentalized Christianity. And it was when a student had no problem dividing up their life into like a pie chart and then deciding what God was the Lord of and what was off limits to him. And remember, the point of following the Good Shepherd is that we're learning to bring our whole life under him, not pieces of it. And so they'd say things like, whatever their thing was, you know, I'm a Christian, so I don't fight, and, you know, I'm going to be uh, generous, uh, but, you know, don't try to talk to me about, like, my boyfriend or my girlfriend. That stuff's private, and it's none of your business. There's the compartment. Like, all this is good. We can discuss this, but this you may not inquire about. And I'm not even saying me. I'm saying, like, this is off limits to God. Or very common when I was a student pastor, was um, the issue of athletics, which, hear me clearly, I'm a super supporter, uh, supporter of them. I've played them uh, most of my life. My son plays them. We're not anti-athletics. We're just saying there is a point where some of these things can teeter on idolatry, where they become more valuable than, than, than God himself. When God says, no, my life should shape you know, should shape everything you do, including this, right? So maybe you're here saying, but, you know, they're teens. They're supposed to figure that stuff out. They'll, they'll grow out of that. And some of them, I'm sure, do. But it doesn't, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to see that this leap kind of spans to the adult level, too. Like, sometimes what we see as is, is youth behavior becomes adult behavior. So people will say things like, you know, I love the fact that we talk about Jesus dying for us. I love the fact that we're going to sing a bunch of Christmas songs coming up and the Messiah's come and he's died for the sins of the world. That stuff's amazing, and I'm all for that compartment of the faith. But when that compartment of the faith starts getting into the other compartments of my life, when I gotta force, I'm forced to deal with the reality that I'm supposed to be uh, living differently, like my priorities are supposed to start changing, I've got to start living sacrificially and generously with my time and my money and my whole life for the sake of Christ and others, well, now that stuff starts getting personal, and that is really none of your business. And sometimes we're pointing straight up to heaven when we say that. Now, that's a convenient theology. It really is. Um, It justifies the Pharisees' behavior. Um, It allows us to kind of reconcile in our mind why we can act like this. But the truth is that it's a false one. And think about this. From the very beginning of this, our whole life 
is the good shepherd's business. That's the point of what he's saying. To, to follow the good shepherd, which again is not like God doesn't make us do this. We, we, we at some point in our life have to volitionally recognize, I'm going to follow you. Like I, I've heard your words and I recognize now that this is the place I go to for life. When we make that decision, we're really saying I'm going to spend the rest of my days giving my life back to Jesus, letting the good shepherd into my affairs, into my life. And he's given us his presence, his scripture, and each other to spur each other on in these inconvenient areas of the scripture that we're trying to live out. And so the Pharisees don't get this, and consequently they deny Jesus because of it. This selective obedience thing, we read about it now, but it still happens today. And I, and I do think it is sort of the spirit of the modern Christian age. Not everybody, but it's one of the big philosophies that Christians are becoming comfortable with. And so some people can very easily justify why uh, they believe certain parts of Scripture don't apply to them. And oftentimes they have really well-thought-out reasons, right? They might be academic, like they read a bunch of books and they've got, they've got the logic down, or they might be philosophical, or they have personal reasons for why a section of the Bible doesn't apply to them. Sometimes it's just flat out experience. Like God would never demand a change in my life that threatens my personal pleasure. Like this is going to be hard if I've got to do this and God would never. And the truth is God would and has, you know. So they get to this place where a number of reasons start becoming okay to justify denying some or in extreme cases all of all of God's word, all of the scripture that Jesus says cannot be set aside. And I'm here to tell you that each one of these things is worth this debating. Each one of these explicit reasons it has a debate around it worth having, but we're not going to have them this morning. I want to point out what I think is the issue beneath the issue with all these things. I'm convinced that the weed growing above the soil, that, that you, you, you see that, what we're talking about here, but the root below it is, the bottom line is, is this, it's a person who's uncomfortable with having to reorient their life around an authority that isn't their own. Whether it's philosophical or academic or experiential, whatever it is, those all sound good and there's probably some validity to it. But at the end of the day, the problem is I got to get to the point where Jesus is the Lord of my life. And to become a sheep like the good shepherd says we are supposed to be, it means that we have to train our hearts for the rest of our days to learn to value his voice above all others, including ourselves. We learn to follow the voice of the good shepherd alone. And that means there are, the very nature of this teaching means there are going to be times when our voice tries to shout out Jesus's. This is an authority issue, and it is a real problem in our Western culture. I'll give you another example. We'll kind of close with this idea. A while back, I saw a preview um, for a show on PBS that chronicled the rise and fall of the American Prohibition period. It's a pretty interesting season in American history. If you've never looked at this, it's fascinating. At least to me it is. You guys know I'm like a history geek. But nonetheless, um, they're talking about like how Prohibition came about and the effects it had on the country. And there was all these kind of, uh, you know, like little disclaimers in it and people like almost doing trailer type stuff in a movie explaining why it was worth watching. And at the end of this little segment, there was a woman that was interviewed that had an influential role in developing. They were asked, or they said, so if you've got like one reason why people should watch the show, tell us what it is. And her answer caught my attention. She said, listen, prohibition, it began with many people obeying it because it was a law. However, there were enough people who who began to rebel against it that it created this underground movement. And this is the key statement. She said, it's the kind of thing that makes for a great American story. And her comment was meant to remind us of how deep the roots of individualism and anti-authoritarianism are in the American psyche at times. At every turn of the road, it's part of our story. You know, I joke about this every July 4th, but think about it. Our way of living was birthed out of something we call the American Revolution. It's, it's largely reduced now to hot dogs, hopefully quality beef hot dogs if you do that sort of thing. But nonetheless, this is, this is what, how we have come to understand the roots of our country. This individualistic streak is in us. 
And so that's why in our culture, it's not surprising that people often deny Jesus and his word because they have a hard time with authority. It's not like this in other, other parts of the world. This is a unique thing we deal with here. They equate submission and obedience with weakness. And this is just not true. Perhaps it's one of the greatest ironies of the Christian faith. However, in the Christian faith, you have to get used to irony because it's filled with them. So think about this. In, in Christianity, um, death leads to life. Right? By submitting to Jesus, you find freedom. Weaknesses are turned into strength. Humility is where you find power. To get ahead in God's eyes, you have to put others ahead of you. To advantage yourself in God's eyes, it means you are willing to disadvantage yourself. You're willing to love neighbor as self. And there are places in scripture, particularly Philippians, where Jesus, I mean, where Paul says you need to love your neighbor more than yourself, right? To advantage yourself in God's eyes means you're willing to disadvantage yourself. The wisdom of man is considered foolishness in God's eyes, and God's wisdom is, is considered foolishness in man's eyes. And so in some senses, you do have to be slightly crazy in the healthy, theologically rounded sense to want to be a Christian. Not the Starbucks guy. That dude's nuts. The Starbucks cup guy, nuts. In case you need an official church position, that's it. He's nuts. If you, if you do the math, you're typically going to, do, uh, you're go, you're going to do things that you might have been told not to do in order to get ahead in life. And when you begin to take the word seriously, when you begin to submit yourself wholly to it, turn to it like Jesus did, strange but good things begin to happen in your heart. Like Jesus, you can stare death and trial in the face and you are unflinched by them, you are unmoved by them because his confidence is in a greater power. And so with this in mind, I want you to meditate on this as we move into uh, response time. I want to close with one last truth about the good shepherd teaching. It's, it's kind of what ties it all together. I'll be brief, but nonetheless, it's important. What we study today comes after Jesus talking about the shepherd-sheep relationship he has with us. He's taught us that if a sheep is to survive, it has to wholly follow the guidance of the good shepherd. And because, of, because the sheep is prone to err in all areas of life, which is why the, the good shepherd's handbook speaks into all areas of life. It's why Jesus wants access to every area of our life. So in light of this, I want to ask you a question. Do you think it's coincidental that Jesus, at the tail end of his good shepherd teaching, right, John records this incident where Jesus has a conversation with a group of people who are selectively submitting to the teachings of the scripture, the shepherd's handbook, and as a result, they miss the good shepherd entirely. They are moving, they're, they're taking what he says and what he's pointing to in print, the written word, and saying, nope, not going not gonna to deal with that. And then all of a sudden we get a group of guys that don't follow Jesus. There is no coincidence in that. You guys are smart enough to see that. The answer to that is very clear. There's, a, there's a, a, a heart issue here with these men he's speaking to. And so this morning I encourage you to learn from the mistakes of the Pharisees. We all can. To, to, to give your life to Christ by recognizing what it means to fully believe and submit yourself to the good shepherd and his word. Because ultimately his voice has to matter most more than anybody's voice in life. So ask yourself, when it comes to Jesus and his word, what is he saying to you, and what are you going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for a week where, although we don't have necessarily a, you know, a traditional Thanksgiving sermon, we, by implication, I think, are given um, something that we can be very thankful for. Two things, really. First, your son, and the fact that your son desires to know us deeply through uh, through us interacting with him in the word. And so we pray now, Lord, that as we have this, this time of kind of contemplation, we live in a busy, crazy world. This is just a few minutes of, of quiet to be able to think and to reflect and to pl- uh, pray and to ponder upon what your Holy Spirit is saying to us. I do pray, God, that we would wrestle intently, allow you into this section of our heart to see where we are um, with your word and how we do or do not understand the importance of what it means to follow you through it. Otherwise, we wind up loving a Jesus that is not your Jesus. (laughs) 
And we know that your son matters deeply to you. So may we love him on his terms and recognize the incredible tools that you have given us to do just that. Your son, your scripture, and your power, the power of your Holy Spirit. Bless this time we have in response. Use it for your glory and for the good of us as we live our lives on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.